Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Eric Paulson started his fly fishing career in the Pacific Northwest. Growing up in an outdoor-oriented family, Eric spent his time fishing and hunting in waters and terrain ranging from the Pacific Coast to western Montana. In 1989, he moved to Bozeman to chase a college football dream with Montana State University. This dream was short-lived, but he found the passion for exploration of the greater Yellowstone area. The rest, as they say, is history. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Eric to discuss 20-plus seasons of being a guide, nymphing versus swinging, and spay casting with balloons. If you haven't already checked out AnchoredOutdoors.com, it's probably time you do. Anchored Outdoors combines education, community, and accessibility all in a sequential system that's fun and easy to follow. I know that free content is everywhere these days, but that doesn't make it accurate or trustworthy. I also know that you would prefer to spend your time on the water instead of figuring out who and what to trust. That's why we cut straight to the chase and do it for you with step-by-step guides, renowned instructors that you've come to know and love from the show, our ever-growing library, interactive events, and even our fun point system that lets you earn up to $200 in premium points. We've got all sorts of exciting new surprises around the corner, including a members-only podcast so that you can listen to the classes while you drive. Find out more at anchoredoutdoors.com. Do you have any questions before we get rolling? Uh, well, it is my first podcast. I haven't done one before. Uh-huh. No right? way. So I just haven't, I haven't been into doing it. So 
But oh my gosh. That being said, and here, here I am. I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even ask. Right. So, yeah. So I went and skied the top of Big Sky today to just like, you know, chill my vibes a little bit and was like, right on. All right. So I'm ready to go. Oh my God. And I listened I, to my first podcast yesterday. That was one of your podcasts. I'd never listened to a podcast before. I got friends of mine that do them and I just been out of the loop with it. Right. So I am so honored right now that you're sitting here. I'm honored that you asked me, you know, I'm just, like I said, just a fishing guide. So it's like, right on, I'll talk about fishing, you know, just a fishing guide usually translates into one of the most interesting people in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But no, (laughs) but no, I mean, I, I think it's a cool thing. So I wanted to do it. So Cool. Well, uh, let's get started. Right. So where were you born and raised? <laughs> oh boy, do I have to say that? No, I, oh, yeah. I will. I was born in Eureka, <laughs> California. Okay. Um, I moved when I was six months old. We moved to uh, Prineville, Oregon. My brother was born there, went to kindergarten. Then we moved to uh, Lakeview, Oregon. And I went to second and third grade. Then to Gig Harbor, Washington lived in Washington for third and fourth grade. And then most of my childhood, I grew up in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, actually a little town called Moye Springs. It, so wait, wait, wait. So all steelhead places, was that just a right. coincidence? Ah, uh, possibly then my dad was in the timber industry. Oh, uh, so, uh, okay. Gotcha. So we were all over in cool timber places. Um, my mom's side of the family lived in the Northern Sierras. So we would go there and fish back and forth, fish all over the Pacific Northwest. It was really pretty cool. Um, cool places to grow up, cool country to see, got to hunt and fish all over the place with my dad and grandfather. So did they fish? My grandfather was as good as they get. Yeah. Really? Not a fly fisherman and gear angler. Um, I didn't fly fish till I was, I I saw somebody do it when I was 11 and I was like, I got to do this. And so I taught myself and there was really no one in Bonner's Ferry. I mean, wherever we lived, we lived behind a lumber mill and, uh, my dad said we couldn't walk through the log deck and we lived up on the hillside in a company house. And then off the side of the hill, like, I don't know, it was like 2000 feet down, 1700 feet down. The Moye river came out of British Columbia and dumped into the Kootenai. And so that was our playground. And it was like where I learned to fly fish and where we fished all the time. And then we'd have to hike back up to the house every day, but we couldn't walk through the log decks to go to town to see our friends as much. So it's pretty secluded, you know, from that was from fifth grade to eighth grade. Okay. So, so when did you start fishing then? I went like fishing, fishing, but I was, I have a picture of myself. I I must've been three and caught a fish in a mountain lake, strawberry Lake in Oregon. I forget the name of the wilderness area, but that was probably my first fish. And then, you know, we fished like crazy all over the place, all the way growing up. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, my dad was in the timber industry, obviously, like I said, in Idaho, but we he had mills in Montana. So we had a, you know, an Idaho plate and a Montana plate. And we would go to, you know, all over to his different plants that we had one in Missoula, one in um, Libby had another one in Trout Creek. And so there's trout streams all over it. So it was fun to go and fish all that country too. And go to Southern BC. We spent a lot of time in Canada. My dad at one point wanted to move to Grand Cache. Do you know where Grand Cache is? No, it sounds remote though. Yeah, it's Alberta. Oh, okay. But he was, yeah. it, 
yeah, it was cool. So we almost did that. We did. And my mom said, that's it. We're not going that far. So we didn't go all the way up there, but spent a lot of time in all that country. Did he have any stories about going into these forests and finding fish, you know, our fisheries, making roads to fisheries that had never been accessed before? What do you mean? Well, I've heard what? lots of stories where you read all the books from the old steelheaders, and a lot of these guys discovered steelhead fisheries just by being loggers, right? So they're making these roads into yeah. these remote rivers, and um, and unfortunately, obviously, there was some demise and some obviously problems arise when humans enter some of these areas. But some of the stories are incredible <laughs> yeah. about the wildlife and the fisheries. Did he have any steelhead stories or salmon stories that you remember? Honestly, in April, my world, mainly we were trout fishermen. Um, we didn't do a lot of steelhead. I didn't steelhead till later on in life. It was more mountain lakes. It was more trout fishing for trout. We did a lot of bass, a lot of crappie. We did a lot of big game hunting, all that type of stuff. I had a little bass boat that went on top of my Suburban through high school. And sometimes we would fish after school, you know, a lot. And, you know, it was more that. And then steelheading, the steelheading that I did as a kid was mainly on the snake. And we would usually take a jet boat way up the snake once a year. And we would mule deer hunt, bird hunt, sturgeon fish, caught sturgeon that was just so gigantic. And then we'd catch some steelhead too. My first steelhead I ever hooked was at the mouth of the salmon where it dumps into the snake. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But, you know, as a young kid, we just didn't do it as much. Yeah, it makes sense. So what about fly fishing? I've got 10 million questions for you. So I'm going to throw out the easy ones to okay. start. <laughs> and then we'll start to Yeah, yeah, that's great. So f fly fishing, I started when I was 11. I was self-taught. My family wasn't, there was nobody in North Idaho that fly fished, right? I mean, it was. it didn't seem like it. We were on an elk hunting trip in, on the St. Joe River, and the elk, it was warm. We saw a few elk, but it wasn't really all that good. So we went fishing, and a guy that worked for my dad, you know, he whips out this fly rod. I'm like, what's this thing? And then he starts fishing and just starts catching them. And the St. Joe is a beautiful river in Idaho, right? And just, I'm like, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, right? This guy is amazing. And, he, and then he showed me his fly box, and it was in the day of all hair flies and all that. So I'm looking at it you know, these beautiful humpies that he tied in every different color. And I was like, I'm sold. This is me. And so it was like, I just, my dad was still, you know, he's a big game hunter guy, you know, fishing's cool, but you do that until you can go hunting. And, uh, I don't know. I was like, I got to do this. So I saved up my money and bought my first fly rod on a family vacation trip to go visit my grandparents. And it was pretty cool. Um, I got the rod. I was so excited to take it below my house where we lived at. And, you know, one of those things when you're a kid, you get in a fight with your little brother. I got grounded for two weeks. It was the best grounding I ever had because I spent two weeks of casting that rod and looking down at that river and was like, I can't wait to get there. Cast and cast and cast and cast and cast. And then finally, when I got down there, the first morning that I was ungrounded, hiked down off the mountain, get to the spot. I think this place is going to be money, right? Get there and get skunked. Then I got skunked for the next week. Yeah, and then finally right. I caught my first 10 inch rainbow on it. And I was like, this is cool. I'm down. It's the only thing I want to throw. And yeah, for, I don't know, ever, that was it. Taught myself how to tie flies. I mean, in North Idaho, there wasn't any, <laughs> there wasn't any fly fishing. So there was a book that I bought. It, I forget where we were at, where I got it, but it was Jack Dennis's like Bible of dry flies. Right. So that was kind of like what I looked at and how I, you know, learned to, 
tie flies and most of them in the beginning were horrible. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> yep, you know, so just. Right. Okay. So then this is kind of personal, but all of that hopping around and, and changing schools, was that, did that shape you or mold you as a person? Did it make you, for example, more quiet? So you wanted to spend time outdoors or did it, did you stay pretty solid because you had your family and your brother? Oh, I had, I mean, pretty solid family. I was way into sports as a kid. So, you know, football, basketball track was something, I mean, you were constantly working out, constantly trying to do that. And I mean, um, we moved around a lot, but when we, by the fifth grade on, I was pretty much in the same school system all the way through high school. So we weren't really moved. We moved into town, um, Bonners Ferry, which is seven miles from Moye Springs. And it was just like, you know, I don't know. It was just a little bit different out of town, but, um, back to your question. No, I, I just loved to fish and hunt. It was just kind of, you know, what we love to do, grew up doing it. And it was like, as soon as I was outside and it was like, that's where I want to be at all the time, you know? Okay. So you go to high school, everything's pretty solid after you guys have landed in Idaho. You stayed there for yeah, a while? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, uh, well, so I mean, I, at 18, I went, I moved to Bozeman. Be- with your family or oh. because you chose to? No, I got, well, I got invited to walk on to play football at Montana State. Oh, okay. So, so I moved there and actually, you know, I'd, I'd been to Bozeman um, two years prior on a ski trip to Jackson Hole. And it was the only time I'd ever been to Bozeman. And I thought it was cool, but I mean, I was kind of set to go to business school and I kind of wanted to go live in the city for a while. I'd been to New York with my family and was like, I got to go do this. I got to go see New York and live in it and whatever. And then the football thing opportunity came up and I'm like, no, I'm going to Bozeman. I'm going to go play football. So my parents dropped me off and I remember coming over the hill from (laughs) dropping into Three Forks. And seeing the Bridger Range and looking around and going, where in the hell are they dropping me off? What's going on here? And uh, it was cool, but it wasn't. And uh, I don't know. They dropped me off. I didn't have a car in my first year of college, which was kind of crazy. But, you know, I focused on football and school. And then I started messing around and was like, wow, I just didn't even realize that I'm in the best fishing of the planet. How did you get around? Because it's, it's not like it's down. It's not like it's Manhattan. We just flag a, a hail a cab everywhere. How did you get around without a vehicle? Oh, I had some cool roommates and I was on the football team and everybody was like, if you're on the football team, you're all, you know, you're going around with the football team. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like college so football, pretty- I mean, American college football is something that I'm quite fascinated by because it seems to have this real cult following. Everyone gets super into it. Is that, were you on one of those teams? Were you one of those guys? Oh, yeah. I thought it was going to be Bo Jackson. I thought it was going to be Marcus Allen. Oh, boy. Yeah, still do, but not really. But I mean, I I did. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, I didn't really realize it until I I actually came and played with the big kids. And you were like, holy cow, I can I'm going to get blown up in here. And I was you know, my body was in pretty good shape. I mean, I did well in high school sports. I mean, I did tr- went to state and track and all that stuff. And but when you go to the next level, you really see how much bigger everybody is and how much better everybody is. And at one point, while you're sitting there, you know, watching it, 
it's cold in Bozeman. We always get a lot of snow and it's always cold. And just watching, we get once a week, you could go hit each other really hard, especially during the season. And you watch these guys get a couple of them went to the NFL. And I was like, oh man, if I get in there, I'm going to get, I'm going to die. And I'm like, I, I don't think I'm big enough to play this game. And I thought that in the back of my head, but I thought, well, I'm going to stick through it. I don't, I'm not going to give up. And, you know, worked out through the winter and uh, played around Bozeman more, skied, you know, did a little bit of hunting, not really, but we went back home to Idaho, hunted in Idaho, would hunt with friends here in Montana. Uh, I was an Idaho resident still at the time, but was going to school in Montana. And uh, springtime came and we do our spring training for football and I was doing it and I was like, oh man, I got buddies going fly fishing. I can't want to go do that. And finally, I just had to go in one day and talk to the coach and said, I'm done. I didn't even talk to my parents first. I just said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, say I'm done with football. I'm going to go and do this different chapter. And that's what I did. I went to college and, and uh, fished everywhere and almost flunked out a million times while, you know, going to college. Bozeman was pretty cool. And I mean, it's still cool. It's the best place. So, I mean mid early nineties, it was like, you know, I was the only college kid I knew that had a drip boat. It was my, it was my roommate's dad's and you know, my room, I had six roommates at the time and they would, uh, they were bikers and skiers and dad's drip boat just sat there and I would just take it and we'd fish all over. It was a single plug, a Luma well drip boat, 16 footer, just you wouldn't even want to row it now, but then it was the only boat. I didn't know anybody else in college that had one. I'd be like, I'd meet, but it'd be like, dude, you got a boat? I'm like, yeah, I got a boat. Let's roll. So we went everywhere and fished all, anywhere we could. So it was cool. I'm really interested in your life as a guide. So now that I've got a basic idea of kind of where you came from, let's get into the guiding talk. So how okay. did that all start? Um, I... Could have started guiding in the early 90s. I worked in a couple fly shops and I was like, I don't want to guide. I want to fish. I like, you know, kind of like hunting. I'm a trigger man. I don't guide elk hunting. I like to pull the trigger. I like to do that. So fishing at that time was that way with me. And I didn't start guiding until I thought that I was ready to own it, that I could go there and be as good as anybody. And when I got out of school, I bought a new drift boat. I student taught in Hardin, Montana, because it was close to the Bighorn River and it was good bird hunting. And I had a bird dog at the time, so I wanted to do that. And uh, I got done with student teaching. It was the middle of the winter and my dad had another mill and out of Bozeman, it's not here anymore. It's in Bel It was in Belgrade. And I went to work on the green chain through the winter. I remember one time and they had these heaters for your face it was 22 below zero and you're pulling green chain outside. And I was like, I got it. I'm not doing this. I mean, I just got out of school. I'm going to make some money doing this and then I'm going to move on and do whatever. And I knew I couldn't leave Montana. I was just, I was pretty infatuated with it. So I took on the guiding thing. I was kind of set up to do it. And I started, you know, I went to all these outfitters and a lot of them I had to go with and take them out fishing. And then it signed me on. And then that's where it started. And the second year I started guiding, uh, George Anderson's, they asked me if I wanted to be one of their core guides. And I said, yeah, I'm in. So what and year so was that? Started. What year approximately? 97. 97? Yeah. Can you believe we're in 2023? I can. 
but I can't. Because I feel like when, like when you say the 90s, especially late 90s, 97, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that wasn't that long ago. And then I have to that stop. That wasn't that long ago. No, it really wasn't, though. I mean, but, but it, it was. But it was. For a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so is that how it used to be back then? Um, to get a guiding gig, the outfitters would have you take them out? Do they still do that? Yeah. Ah, not as much anymore. I mean, they do and they don't. I mean, it's pretty... It's so competitive here. That's what still makes it fun. But it's like, yeah, I mean, you do, I would bet, have to do it that way. I'm not, I'm a single boat outfitter. I've never been one to do, I've done a couple big groups, but that's not my gig. I don't like doing that. I don't like how it, I don't, I don't need to go there. I just, if my hands are busy, that's good enough for me. And so that's the way I've kind of done my guiding. Was it busy back then? It could be. It was a different scene. It was like you, you know, everybody does lunch and you have lunch and you bring out the table. I carried a table for years and finally I said, no way, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm doing it my way. Eventually, especially, you know, four or five years into it, I got my outfitter's license. And I was like, I'm changing all this. I'm not doing it that way anymore. You know, I'm going to, here's a sack lunch. I like to bring my own lunch and then we're gone. We're going to, you know, eat for 15 minutes and we're back on the river. So, how how does one get their outfitting license in Montana? Uh, I think it's a hundred days and three years, and you can become an outfitter. Oh, after you've put in that amount of time. Yes, then you take the outfitter exam, and you can prove that uh, outfitter law at that time, and, and you don't have to do it. It's changed, but you had to log your days, so you'd have it all logged, and you send it to the state. Right. And there wasn't a certain cap. I know in British Columbia, there's a cap on certain fisheries. What about there? Well, there is now. There wasn't then. Then it was wide open. Now they've started. And there were still places then. I mean, like the bear trap has always been two outfitters that have had it. Um, but, you know, like Big Hole Beaverhead, right in the middle of my me getting my outfitter's license, they put regulations on those two rivers. And I spent a lot of time on them. I mean, it, for me, my business plan has always been being able to be mobile through Montana. And I got a lot of shit for it for a while. And then now it's just, that's how you do it. But it was like, I traveled to where the fishing was good and wherever the fishing, and it made me look better because I was not sitting on the same place that wasn't, it just went stale, you know, would go fish all over. It's how I did it in college. We would go to where it was good all the time. And then, so I just picked off from that when I started guiding. Right. And then how did you so, advertise to get your clients back then? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, at first I would just, you know, keep all that contact information and then I would, you know, write them a letter every year and send the letter. I mean, we didn't have internet, right? So it'd be like each person had an individual letter that I would, you know, remember something and, and send it to them. And then, you know, as the years went by, it was obviously way easier, but the shop also helped out too. I've worked for George and Jamie forever. So they're like family and, uh, they would help out and make sure that my calendar filled in and whatever. Now it's, it's pretty, now it's pretty cool. I mean, you just, they just get in touch with me. It's like, Hey Eric, can you go here? Can you It's like, yeah, you know, and I also structured my business too. So it was like, I wanted to take one single angler. I wanted to take one really good angler. And I, I mean, they, they weren't always good. I mean, they would progressively get better, but that's anymore. My, a lot of my clients are better than most of the fishing guides I know. They really are. It blows my mind how good they are. They make me look good because they are just 
such good anglers, you know, but you know, your job when it's like that is you need to be able to put those people in the best fishing. So, and it, so there's that challenge with it, you know? I know there are going to be people, especially young people right now listening, who would like to follow in your footsteps. So I'm going to navigate that path carefully, um, but I do want to cover certain aspects about being in the fishing industry. So just bear with me as I pick through them. Um, okay. As, yeah, as far sure. as, you know, a few minutes ago you said um, it, it wasn't as competitive as it is now, which makes it fun, which yeah. has my brain, I'm just percolating right now. What do you mean? Do you enjoy the competition? Uh, dude, I mean, I'm, my favorite passion in the world is hunting elk. And when you hunt elk in Montana, it can be the most competitive thing on the planet. And if you take it, it, it's like football. You take that to the river and you size up the competition. And I hate to even put it out there and I haven't put it out there in a podcast or anything, but now I am. You can see it kind of gives you the flutter in your stomach. It's like before a game. It's like, here we go. I see it. It's like they don't set up. They've never fished here before. They're lost and whatever. And then we're going to just go get it done right now. You know, and it's like the other thing that I've done forever is just go long. I mean, I, I treat guiding the most professional as I can to it. And also it's a training place for me to exercise. It gets me in shape for elk season. So that means guess what? I'm going 20 miles and I can know most of the kids. They want to be off at three right on. I'm going 20 miles. I'm going to do all that. If I get busy between people, I'll push. I'll just get lost. If the weather's bad and you're trying to talk people out of going, I usually just go. Some of my best fishing is like right at that time when the weather's shitty, you know, it's like, what else are you going to do? But I don't know. I've kind of bounced around on what you just said, but that's kind of my, how I roll with what I do. Put me in coach. <laughs> there is a lot of that with it. It yeah. feels like Sometimes it's your football. I coach too much. The strategy. I love the whole strategizing. That's a fantastic point though. Same thing I do with steelheading, especially when you play on somebody else's field. Cause I do that. And you walk in and you look at it and you go, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm in. I mean, it's like going to a new hunting spot, you know, and there's somebody camped in there or you go to the trailhead and there's like two guys sitting there walking up with backpacks and you pull up and pull your horse out and put your gun in the scabbard. It's like, but I ain't waiting. I'm gone. I'm going to run right past you and I'm going to the hills. What about, what about the <laughs> fish though? That That's the people. What about the fish? Have you had to evolve or change your own style and methodologies based around the fish or have you For pretty sure. much it's, stayed it's, the same? No, it's no, it's not. It's changed. I mean, we, yeah, evolved a lot and most of it. I don't talk about to a lot of people. I have a small circle of friends. I don't go to a lot of trout unlimited meetings. I don't go in a lot of fly shops. I go into one, but I don't fish with a lot of fishing guides. I have a couple that I go with, but the knowledge that the small crew shares is pretty amazing. And it feels like it's like dialed. You know, steelhead world, Sam, Atlantic salmon world, um, trout world, all the same kind of deal. And I don't know if that's for good or bad. It's weird. I mean, I, I've listened to your podcast, the second podcast I've ever listened to with Kelly talking about, you know, in the old days, how you kept it secret. And I was like, I, I kind of giggled to myself. It's like, dude, you showed up here in 1998. I was throwing giant streamers on the Madison, but it worked great. And then you showed up, it's like, nobody was doing it. It's like, no, we were doing it. We just weren't talking about it yet. And that was the old world, good or for bad. That was the old world of doing it. And now we transition later and now we, you know, it's like, it's not cool to be that way anymore. You need to tell everybody everything it feels like. And that's, I don't know, still kind of hard. 
a little bit, but yeah, rambling I, again. I re- no, but I remember <laughs> the switch from the gatekeeping See? to the sharing. And I remember it was especially polarizing because it happened around the same time I got into the industry. So again, all of this goes together. So being a woman, the industry changing and the internet all merging into one. So obviously it's harder to gatekeep with the internet. So I was accused a lot, you know, of people giving me free information, um, because of being a woman, but the reality is the industry was changing and the gatekeeping was starting to, um, not be cool anymore. Right. Because back in the day you had to know somebody, put your time in the shop. I mean, I know I was a library rat, um, you had to really put in your time, and then maybe the old guy behind the counter maybe would say to you, "Well, he might you know throw what? you a bone, but maybe um, not." <laughs> maybe, right? Um, it was really yeah, hard to get totally. information. No, I hundred percent agree. The internet came out, and it was just like all of a sudden the floodgates opened, um, yeah. for for better or for worse. But it was a major change. Looking back, I mean, mm-hmm. person to person here, just talking real. Okay, what do you think? Yeah. Do you think it was good? I mean. I don't know how I feel sometimes about it. Sometimes I feel like I kind well, of oh, they, they, miss the old days of I having think, to just put my time in. I mean, it makes it easier for you to, for people to get so much knowledge quicker. But then it's like when you're actually boots on the ground, they got all this knowledge and all this stuff, but the experience is a big deal. I think, you know, knowing that that bank's not going to be that good, even, if, but you don't know that until you fish it a hundred times. Right. And the internet doesn't tell you that. The internet just says, okay, these boots, these waders, this rod, this river stretch. I think that part, I, it, but to answer your question, it was, it's the way it is. No, I wish it wasn't like that, that you could go on the internet and learn everything really quick. No, but I don't. Beyond people, I'm talking like Google, even just, I, I used to love the days of pulling up my map and looking at the gradient and figuring yeah, out, all right, totally. and, the subs- and figuring out, all right, where does this river lead to? Now I just pull up. Google Earth and go. All right, that seems like a pretty decent pool. You know, oh, it, do it you just... look at? Do, I, do, do you have Onyx maps? That's cheating. Oh. Everybody's cheating in the hunting world <laughs> with that thing. It's just absolutely the most. I I can't believe it. As soon as I have that thing, I'm like, this is this is perfect. Right. I mean, Wait. You find I thought out all that did single... was. I thought Onyx just told you um, property lines. Yeah, but it gives you every state and government place that there is to. Oh, that you can every access. property ownership. You know who owns the property. Oh, no matter right. who it is. Right, so if right, like, right. Yeah. If you're in Forks, Washington and want to know whether you can get a permit for Rainier Lumber Company, you can look at all their property boundaries everywhere and go, oh, I know where that steelhead hole is. I've floated there a hundred times. I'm going to just walk to it. Yeah, right. Over and over and over. It's a great app. I mean, I it is, but it's like so much technology versus, like you said, bring out your old topo map and match it up to your wilderness area map and try and figure out where the hell you're at. That's... It's different. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Have you been faced with that opportunity with a young guide, for example, coming in wanting information and you've had to look at yourself and the new norm and think, all right, well, do I help this young lad or young lady because that's how things are done now and this person's clearly keen? Or have you thought to yourself, listen, kiddo, I had to work for it and you do too. I've been both better in my older age. And I, you know, ran into a young guy that I work with this year and he is, he's going to be a superstar and it's tough to be ornery to him. I mean, I used to just kind of be ornery because it was like, it's a football game, right? You know, we're going, we're both in here, but you know, after the game, I'll have a beer with you, but while we're at the game, I'm not, but I don't know anymore. I, they're nice and people are nice and you, See, it's tough you're getting to be soft, a jerk. That's, that's what happens. That's probably good. It is. <laughs> but that, I think that's what happens is a lot of these. And, yeah. and it does make me wonder though about the whole timeline of, remember I, remember I mentioned I saw the transition happening. And I do have yeah, right. to wonder if it's because that old guard, um, I mean, because let's get real, a lot of those real hardcore anglers were in, the, it happened in the 70s, 80s. And then mm-hmm. by the time that I know that I saw it happening in the early 2000s, were they just reaching an age where they were starting to soften up? And it just so happened to be this big boom where all these hardcore anglers who got into it in the 70s and 80s started to soften up and then the internet and all this networking. And before we know it, we just had this enormous boom of, like I said, floodgates of information and helping each other for, yeah. for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, and the old guys were ornery. Maybe they softened up, but there's some of them are still ornery. ornery. I know some of them, and they weren't giving me anything. All right, you know? okay. <laughs> I mean, it was like, go whatever, kid. You're like, uh-uh. <laughs> but, yeah, I definitely a great big change, you know, in this area. And, you know, the other thing that I saw in this area is all the outfitters and guys that came here and built lodges and stuff all over the place. And it was like, holy cow. I mean, they, they, a lot of them go, oh, I remember the old days. It's like, what do you mean? You build a lodge and you got 10 guides going out of them. And you wonder why it's busy. Well, it's, this is crazy, you know. And that was done up and down everywhere in the valleys of Montana. It was just, and it still is. It's, it's, I see a new lodge or new fly shop going up all the time. It's just that place. It, it, it has become that place. But I, I cut you off and I hijacked the conversation. You were talking about how... Okay. You're very careful about who you fish with. Um, fishing streamers yeah. back, you know, 97, for example. Were there any... Oh, anything? way before that, but yeah. Yeah, so talk to me about yeah. that. Tell me about tell me about different techniques. Yeah, it's what, Mike the chicken yours. fried steak was this big? Re- really? <laughs> April. We, we were using giant ones. On the Madison, it was blowing my mind. We were catching them all over the place. The, I, we fished for Paula's as kids, but it was a different deal. I mean... The old timers were the old timers. I'm sure saw a lot of the old timers, especially in the Yellowstone. Everybody knew to throw a streamer on the Yellowstone, but it was like kind of new, a lot of new materials coming out, a lot of new stuff coming out. But it was also like when you did it and you were successful, you were quiet about it. You showed your circle. You didn't tell anybody. 
you, you, you know, I mean, we still had film cameras, right? You take a picture of your trophy and couldn't wait to get it developed. So you can see what it looked like. You know, it was like, oh man, that's what I was looking for. I mean, oh, I had my finger and, over the thing the entire time. I can't even see it. <laughs> yeah, it was wrong. It was like, dude, do you know how to operate a camera? Look at this picture. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. I, for, I forgot about those film days. Um, but talk to me about mm-hmm. um, certain techniques. Are you are you willing to share any techniques that you have found to be overly or to be um, just surprisingly successful? Is there anything that you're? Are there any techniques that you're willing oh, to share I mean, with a young besides a, besides a balloon with a spay rod is the most nobody does it. I just can't believe what, what, it, and what, I can't. What, what, I, I, I quit. What, what are you talking about? A yeah, balloon, right? Huh, well, you want to know about the, it's the best way to catch big fish there is I'm throwing it out there for the first time and everybody should know I've been doing it for, we've been doing it for a long time. Is? Are you, is what? Are you, is what? Put, a spay rod with a strike indicator oh, a spay, on it. Oh, is, is that what you're calling a balloon? A balloon is a true strike indicator. A like thing of a is exactly what it is. Yeah. You can get it in every color for every application. It's a true strike indicator. Hang on, stop. It, I'm having it, a moment. <laughs> okay, so you're not You should, you're dude, not because using... it is the cool, one of the coolest tools in fly fishing. This and is a lingo. there's not enough people to do it. A balloon, like for my daughter, the balloons that I have yeah. here. Yeah, and then, 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 you'll, yeah, then you'll trip out and you only buy from certain companies a certain type of balloon. We have steelhead balloons and we have trout balloons. Uh-huh. We can, uh, if you saw, and you can get it in any color you want, whatever your eye works for. Okay, I'm going to need you to hold my hand through this. So... Okay. Not a plastic thingamabobber, a balloon, and you blow yeah. it up to be how big? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it depends. Steelhead, I blow them up way big because you run. You can run a leader as long as your rod. You can't make a leader. So I've got spay rods that are like set up to 17 feet long. So that's the max I can make a mega leader. But so for those, and if you add a lot of weight to it, you need a bigger balloon. And if it's windy and you're worried about your <laughs> balloon on your drip, put a little water in it. And it stays on the water more and doesn't blow. And so okay, it looks wait, more natural <laughs> under the water. I haven't had Dude, my mind blown fish- in an episode in a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> nymph, fishing, nymph fishing in Montana is so technical. And then you take it and you go take it to the steelhead world, especially the ones that, you know, you don't have to just swing. I love swinging. It's great. Caught a bunch of big ones swinging. But when you run this application on it, it's a different Jedi move. And we use long belly lines. You can't even buy a long belly line anymore. A traditional long belly line is the best because it's long. Okay, so you have your leader. Obviously, um, you're not. I'm not going to give you all the details on here. Darn it! I'm looking for a setup. Um, (laughs) So wait. So what about? Do you use a sink tip or split shot? I use soft putty tungsten. Okay, got it. You can micro. Yeah, always. Okay, and then when you make your cast. I mean, I just try to hear the sound. I'm trying to imagine the sound and what it would feel like going through the air. It's the sickest. It's the sickest thing. And it's so hard that people quit doing it. And you're not messing Uh-oh, with me right now. That's my wolfhound barking. Sorry. Oh, do you want to go check and make sure everything's okay? <laughs> no, they're, they're good. They quit. And you're, not taking, you're so, not taking the piss right now. This isn't like an embarrassed April moment online. You're being dead serious. Oh, I absolutely. I can. I'll. I could show you piles of giant brown trout, giant, more big steelhead we've caught doing that than to just, it's ridiculous. And, and the water in the balloon, when, because you I said don't always use water windy. in the balloon either. But, and what's, but what's, when it's windy, yeah, metal so windy. How does that work? It just keeps it stuck to the water. 
Yeah, makes your throat better too. Oh, you can run single-handed. I run balloons on single-handed or double-handed rides. I run primarily two different colors. One's fluorescent green. One's fluorescent yellow. You can almost see them in any light. But we run them in a lot of different colors. What if it pops? Oh, you throw it away and put a new one on. But you don't have to worry about the the plastics in the water or anything like that. Uh, stay and in some of these, what you do need to worry about, especially with spay rides, is the balloon hemorrhaging. When it hemorrhages and it gives like a bulge, sometimes your line will spin. So <sighs> played with this a ton too. We just do different ways that you rig it in between things and it won't spin. Swivels, metal ones. So, and then it won't mess up your line. Because it, you know, when you do a nip, it's different. It's crazy. You watch these people and you're fishing with a fly rod, right? And you're, you got nine foot of rod and you got what? 80 feet of line. And they just mend and mend and mend with a, with a long belly line. You can get them 150 feet long. There's a company and, and, and your drift goes all the way to the end of that. So you can see the balloon 150 feet below you. And all of a sudden it does the dance and you lift into it. And there it is. It's insane. It's the coolest thing. On the coast, we were doing it with switch rods sitting in rafts, throwing balloons in the rig. And all my clients that I take there are, I mean, they're super good, but they're all, they can throw a spade rod swing. They can throw it with, we have both rods rigged up to do certain places. You're side drifting certain places. You're, you know, swinging places, obviously, but it's fun. It's so addicting and so cool. In the trout world, it's so, especially in tailwaters in Montana, it's so competitive and so like it, it's, your rig is as important as your bugs a lot of times. And that particular one, you can anchor point in a drift point in a drift boat and you can just drift through the spot that you think is really good. But these mega long drifts that I don't have to row all the way back up in a circle, you know, do the, you know, the merry-go-round that we do with drift boats, I can anchor and they can send it and just shoot lines down through it and the other way would be to get in a drift boat and do it oh my gosh so, what what is your opinion on the whole debate between nymphing versus swinging well that's interesting you asked that when i first time i went atlantic salmon fishing i took my um steelhead rig to gas bay and I got it out. I don't know if you know Austin Clark. He's like the godfather of steelhead or salmon fishing in Gas Bay. I've fished with him, canoed with him on all the rivers. And he's came to Montana, fished with him all over here. But I don't think he could look at me straight. He was so upset. At what? That you would even think about swinging with this. Okay. Oh, no, I thought you brought balloons are illegal there. Okay. <laughs> I no. was going to say. <laughs> but he was more appalled with that than I've been in Washington steelhead fishing with a balloon in my rig. And there's a swinger guy with the hoity-toity hat on all torque that I'm using a balloon on. I'm like, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. So what and, was he upset? You know, he was upset that you were swinging for salmon? He couldn't watch it. You were sinking a fly. You were, you were down deep in the water column. I mean, oh. there it's traditional dry line. <laughs> dry leader, traditional fly, all that stuff. But I mean, it's like, okay, well you can't use, you can use sink tips. So it's like, why is it, why is this so, they just don't do it, you know? Because it wasn't Later legal on, for I mean, a long go, time, go, right? I think when I fished the gas bay, it was illegal to have, definitely illegal to have split shot. Yeah, right. You never can use that or a weighted fly, any weight on it. Dude, and even, and, I, and I've ran into it before too. It's like, okay, here's your intruder. You can't use wire. You gotta use backing. Then you get this stupid hook, or you can't. Here's the other new one I heard: no sink tips, sink tips with plastic tubes. 
Why is that? And find that one. Oh, because it's French Canada is all I can tell you. I don't know any better. You might want to cut that part out, but I have no idea. Right. <laughs> and I was just like. <laughs> they've, got their own, they've got their own set of rules. Yeah. Um, you but, go in the National Forest there and it says seven chasseurs to hunt. And I'm like, what's this mean? Oh, no, you can't hunt there. Have, somebody's already claimed it. It's like, who does that? You know, you so what's, do that in Montana, what's your but, personal you know. opinion on the whole nymph versus swing? Oh, I love them both. I mean, here's the biggest thing is there's different places to do both. It just it, 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 at one point people should realize it. But, you know, I mean, there's certain rivers you walk into, then it's not a place to swing. The fish don't hold there. The, you can't get to them with your swing. Even if you did all this fancy stuff, you can't just you got to run, you know, gear oriented type stuff. It doesn't mean the steelhead aren't there, though. There's steelhead there. They just aren't there for eating your swing fly. What about in Montana, and though? swinging's temperamental, too. What do you mean? It's borrowed technology from Atlantic salmon fishing. I mean, and, and you think about the closest genetic cousin to a brown trout is what? Atlantic salmon. And what does a brown trout like to do? It likes to eat dry flies and likes to chase streamers. What does a rainbow like to do? Like to eat eggs, right? They eat dry flies. They eat streamers, too, but they like to eat eggs, mainly. So then you run into that with it. I think a lot. It's like, you know, and I have more and more Alaska steelhead guides and, and friends of mine that are guides. It's like they're genetically programmed to eat eggs. And it's like they're not as apt to swing. When I, when I float in Montana, I heard, you, I heard uh, Kelly say it. Brown trout like to chase a stream or brown trout. You know, that's kind of what they do. Well, you go Atlantic salmon fishing, especially with the water temperatures, right? And it just, it, they just eat it. You know, I know the conditions are controlled with anglers and beats and everything, but I mean, they really want to grab at it. You can strip a streamer and catch an Atlantic salmon. Mm -hmm. You can throw a dry fly dead drifted and they love to eat them. I don't you know what the deal strip is. strip streamers on the top. I mean, there was one year in Norway that we just could not make it happen. And the secret was um, stripped sunray shadows on the, or is that what they call sunray shadows? Yeah, sunray you shadows bet. on the surface. Oh, yeah. That's, the surface. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Try and do that for a steelhead on the OP when it's cold water. So do you think it's, do you think it's water temperature and their metabolisms and just oh, how much energy they have? amazingly water temperature. I mean, I treat steelhead and salmon, both like trout. Salmon, we can't fish with indicators. We can fish with indicators for steelhead. But they're in the same spots. If it's super cold water, I mean, you don't get them on the swing as much. I, I've been on the Missouri where the swinging is so unbelievable, I can't believe it. But it's the water temperature and everything is just kind of big play into it. When you have like, especially on the OP, I mean, you got these fish, they're coming in and they all of a sudden they're shocked. The water's coming off a glacier. They aren't going to be up for chasing a fly. It doesn't mean that the fish aren't there. They just are not into chasing a, you know, a swung bug right now. And there's still, I get it. There's still some grabby fish. I've been played the moon tide game. I've done all that stuff and played the moon tide game where I'm swinging the hole first. And I got a buddy of mine throwing a bead on gear and he gets three and picks my pocket. And I'm like, unbelievable. I mean, the book says when they come out of the ocean, they swatted everything in front of their face. And I've been throwing this fly in front of their face, but yet you're catching them on a bead and I can hear the ocean crashing in the background. Did you say play the moon tide but, game? Yeah. What's that? Oh, just the way that you predict the fish coming in on the tides. 
And there's different ways. A friend of mine is the magician on it. And I have seen it work so many times. He says at this time, this is when the fish are coming in and we'll go. He goes, we need to be 45 minutes of blah, blah. We get there and I'm like sitting there. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. All of a sudden there's a bloop of fish coming up using the tide and using, you know, all that stuff. And we used to see it on the, on the Dean. And when they come in on the tide and it was like clockwork, they'd come in on the tide and they would, we called it, called it pogo sticking. They would pogo stick. I don't know if they were trying to get sea lice off of them or if they were just adapting to the fresh water, but it was like clockwork. Have you ever seen that last unicorn movie? The last unicorn? It's from years ago when I was a kid. And the, at the end of the movie, all these unicorns come rushing out of the ocean onto land. Right? And at some point, you can see them also rushing into the ocean. And every single time on the Dean, when they would come in on the tide, that was what it was like. You would just see this big, huge push of fish come it's, through like unicorns. It was so magical. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. It's, it's not, I mean, I haven't seen it like that on the OP, but it's, it can be pretty fun. I mean, it's pretty good, but that's, that's cool. Well, you see coho do it as well, right? You see coho all rolling in yeah. as they come through. But what about trout though? Do you have a moon tide? No, you wouldn't with trout. No, but what trout, what we see, I mean, I, I like to go after bigger brown trout. I got a friend of mine that's, <laughs> he's a hundred percent hermit, but probably the best guide in Montana and has by far the best flies I've ever seen anybody have in the state of Montana. And he is just focused on it. He was a college athlete here at MSU, but we like, he likes to chase brown trout and he goes everywhere. And, and I mean, I accompany him with him or I have the gear. We both go and I fish with him a lot, but the brown trout will do the same thing. Rainbows will do the same thing too, right around spawn time. They'll bloop, we call it. They're blooping. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got a player. There's one in there, you know, you'll see them jump out of the water. I don't know. Salmon do it too, right? I mean, you watch a salmon, Atlantic salmon, they'll just, all of a sudden you got a fish jumping out or a steelhead. But it seems like around spawn time that happens with our fish. Otherwise, I don't see it in trout any other time. I mean, I fish a lot of different places where there's like lake run fish. They'll do it, you know, as they move through. Right. What about when you're trying to decide whether to nymph or to swing? Are you looking primarily at the substrate? You know, if there's lots of rocks and whatnot, the current, I guess it's kind of one and the same, the temperature or the species? Um, one, it's a river for me. And then uh, salmon are different than steelhead, but cause you can only swing for them. So you just figure out every angle on that steelhead. It's, it's, it's water temperature too. Sometimes I just, you know, and, and the way the river looks, the river bottom. I mean, if it's a Canyon stretch and it doesn't look like it'd be really good swinging and the water temperature's cold and I know the fish are down lower into it and I'm never going to get my fly down deep enough to them, then it's obviously nymphing would be better. But if I'm in a run where it's long, like the hoe, where it's long and flat for a long way, boy, you can cover more water swinging and, you know, conditions right when the swing, when they're grabby to it, it's better than nymphing. As you know, I mean, it, they just... And it's magic when that goes down. It really is. I mean, just there isn't much better feeling than when they could clunk it. You're yeah. like, oh, wow, that's not bottom. That's one. <laughs> you know, that moment but when you said that, I get kind of jazzed up on it. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Um, I have questions for you professionally beyond just the okay. fish. As a 51 year old man, what is your plan yeah. moving, moving forward? Are you going to do this forever? 
Yeah, I'm going to live to 145. I mean, why not? <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it gets better every year, you know? I mean, I love the exercise of it. And, um, I mean, in the wintertime, I work up at the ski hill. I was, the other day, rode up to the top. It was, the light was just coming on, and we helped shovel out, shovel out with the young kids out mountain lift, you know? And it's like, you're clipping it in the snow in the, with your boots and pushing snow off the mountain. And then, you know, when you're done with that, you're skiing off the backside of the Yellowstone Club. It's like, why would I want to quit doing this stuff? I mean, keeps you young. What happens if you get hurt, though? Right, because you, you don't That's have other different. guides to rely on. So has that changed? Nope. Have they added policies, um, insurance policies for guides yet? Uh, I don't know if they have that at all. No, I mean I think too if you're a fishing guide that if you're counting on just making money from being guiding that you know the guiding part of it, um, that's not going to work. You know, eventually you need to dive into other things, side stuff that will make you you know. Um, and my wife is, you know, into real estate. She has been, she grew up in Bozeman and, and, you know, we, we work that way with that too and try and, you know, it's, I, I think that's a balance of it. Maybe that'll be my retirement too, is to run the skid steer and a bulldozer around. I don't know. I doubt that. Yeah, right. I could, I, I'm not surprised that your wife's in real estate because your house is styled so beautifully. <laughs> She's great. She's the best. It's wonderful. She, I, I love mean, her style. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, she, honestly, I wish I could walk. She, this was a house that we rented, and she, I, I was the grunt in it. So if she needed, you know, her and her dad designed the whole thing, like the whole staircase. She did all that of the whole, oh, really? it was crazy. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So she's a superstar. Do you have children? Yeah, two kids. Uh, we have a 10 year old and a 14 year old, both gotcha. awesome kids. Yeah. You seem like you have it really together. I mean, is that, a, is that a fair assessment? I feel like you have it together. I, uh, we try to, at times it doesn't feel like it, but for the most part, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like everything in life, right? It's a challenge family, you know, Somebody can be upset about something and how you deal with it and go about it. But yeah, I mean, I, we try to for sure. Gotcha. Now, what have I missed in all of this? Because I'm, I'm positive that we could, especially over a whiskey, have some fantastic off the record conversations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there we go. <laughs> but on, on record right now, publicly, is there anything that you would like to address? Is there anything that um, it matters to you that I just might not be thinking to ask? Uh, I don't know. I, I, what, what are you doing for the, from the conservation stance? I mean, I know that that's always a pressure. Um, a, a I'm back pressure to my Chief Joseph stance. I will fight no more forever. Okay. <laughs> have you I'm noticed? I'm serious. I'm just like, I see both sides. I got friends in the oil industry. I have friends in the logging industry. I have friends in the ranching industry. I have friends in the fishing industry. And it's like, you know, water and this and that. And I mean, it's like, huh, it's tough. Because one of them's Maddie and the other one's not. Now, you know, I, I, I just don't. I mean, what I try and do is everywhere I go, I pick up garbage. I see it. The, I mean, I try and do all that. I try and do my part that way. Um, a lot of this stuff to me, unfortunately, April looks, I don't know. I, like we were talking about, I, I, I don't know which way to go with it. I, I hate to not give you a definitive answer on that, that's okay. but that's kind of where I'm at with it, you know. We live in a world where consumption's just crazy. So how can you know? I 
I live in a state where I watch the coal trains go back and forth like you wouldn't believe, but they won't burn it in Montana anymore. They take it to China and burn it. How cool is that? What's the story with that? I mean, are you really conserving anything if you say, okay, we can't burn it anymore in Montana? Okay, well, you can't burn it. We're going to take it to China and burn it because you're still doing it. Is that really any conservation? That's kind of where... Just not in my backyard. You can't see it. Yeah, not my backyard. So it's not happening. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Is there anything about your life or you that you would like to add? Or is there anything you'd like to ask me before we wrap it up? Um... Now that you're you blowing my mind about fly? balloons, what, what's that? Yeah, are you? Well, we were going to talk about the salmon fly. I thought originally, but we didn't. But are you? You're coming out this summer. You should go fishing with me. What's what? What's salmon fly? Is this something I've missed? Well, the flutter bug. That was the original conversation oh, okay. that we were well, going to talk about. Well, the original conversation. I'm so sorry, and this is my fault. I am obviously really horrible. I didn't even know I was going to be on the podcast until yesterday. Right. So there's two different things that I schedule for. One is for an interactive fly tying night Uh with our members. Okay. And one is a podcast. And so what had happened was I was trying to schedule out my year for both (laughs) things. And so my, my tying nights booked up real fast. So I'm now looking from May on because I only do one a month. And I'd always wanted to sit down to podcast you as well. And I can't remember somehow (sighs) with my own, because of Instagram messages, that's what, if it's email, I'm gold. As soon as I start oh, getting gotcha. confused, my messages, I get really disorganized, just unorganized. Um, and you got so, a lot and, more stuff going on with me with that. So well, there's just you, too sure many messages like on Instagram. Yeah. And you know, you get filled with just stupid emails, stupid messages, yeah. but my no, inbox is legit. And anyway, and so we were booking the, um, tying night. And then for some reason I shifted in my head into podcast. So I'll talk to you when, when we're wrap this up, I'll explain the tying night. Um, but forget, okay, okay. well, actually, yeah. actually that's not a bad thing. No, hang on. But before we go, I will ask you a bit about this. So I had asked members who they wanted right. me to have on for our next interactive tying night. And they had asked for me to have you with the shutterbug. So what is this fly? Why is it famous? Um, tell me have a little bit more. Have you seen one? No. Ah, no I, which I, I had, I've been practicing tying. No, it's uh, you, you, you got to hold it in your hand to see it. I, I don't have one sitting around here right now. It's up in my shop. I'm still good. It's, it, it's a salmon fly for fishing the salmon fly hatch in Montana or Idaho oh. or whatever. It's like a big dry fly. Oh, apparently Eric Paulson is a mad keen boxer. Hang on. Let me go. <laughs> fly <fishing. laughs> Okay, here we go. Um, oh, I see it. Okay. All right. Oh, that's a good looking fly. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it works. Right, okay. When did you make that? Or when did you design that? Uh, I started tying it in the early, well, mid-90s. And then it was like, it was pretty popular around Bozeman within the circle. And people kind of knew I carried it in my hat because you couldn't, like, you know, put it in boxes. It was too big. And then they started, like, <laughs> there was one of the fly shops in town. They would teach it in fly tying. Cause it's a fun fly to tie. And then I was at the point where I was like, okay, I should probably just send this. So I sent it into Umpqua and I believe it was Bruce Olson at the time was way, way into salmon flies. He goes, you got a salmon fly for me. Well, yeah, I got a salmon fly for you. So I sent it to him and he was like, this is in. And so it's been with Umpqua for quite a while and it's really a fun fly to fish. And why does that one fish so well? It does, it looks like it might sit nicely in the water. It was a fly that looked like a 
it looked like an insect in distress. And if you see the rig to fish it and how you throw it in there, and I mean, sit and make D-loop mins on it and let it drift and barely wiggle, it just, it, I don't know. And then we started catching a lot of big brown trout on it. Same size brown trout you'd catch on a streamer and eat the salmon fly. It's always been that way. I felt in Montana. I mean, it's the one time of year they'll come up and eat it. And they just, the big ones do it. Right. So, what, what month is that, that all this happens? That's June. I'm going to be out your way. Where, so how yeah. far, how, I'm hosting a trip with Kelly. How far are you from Kelly's place? He is, I would bet, an hour and 15 minutes away. I might have to do a little road trip. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at that time, I'm usually in on the Madison or on the big hole. Um, and it's easy because a lot of times I stay in Virginia city too. So it's really fast over the hill to Ennis. Um, but yeah, we should go, you should see this fly. It's fun. Especially, I think we're going to have a good year too. I mean, we have a lot of snow and if it continues the, my favorite salmon fly fishing years are the high water years when it's low, it's not as good as salmon fly fishing, but when the water's high, it's really technical dry fly fishing. That was, that's been my appeal to it. I mean, you, you make yourself just focus on throwing the dry and being the perfect you can. And all of a sudden one will come up and eat it. And they're big ones a lot. You know, you think it's over and you try and, you know, you fight that demon. You want to put a nymph on. It's like, no, just throw it dry. Just watch. Who cares? You're throwing a dry fly in the coolest place in the world, looking at the Madison range. And all of a sudden a giant brown comes up and eat it. I mean, that's, fly fishing right there, you know? So, but I think you're coming out at a great time. Should be good, but maybe one afternoon or one evening should let me float you down the river. Oh, I would I love that. Might make you row. I, yeah. When Just was the last time bit. you fished? When was the last time you fished? Oh, I fish constantly. Okay. Well, a lot of the guys I guide with, I fish with them constantly, but it's when was the last time I fished like that recently? Oh no! Is I just mean you're if you're all, if you're always guiding, it's hard to actually. I'm have, not guiding have someone that much you. too. I mean, I I do my you know I'll have blocks where I work a lot, and there'll be days like especially in the Madison, it'll be like Paulson throw it in there. You go you know, or I'll see them come up and miss their fly, or they miss it, and I'll jump out of the boat, throw the anchor down, hike up and catch it. because <gasps> it'll be in some a lot. You do George that? Anderson told me a long time. You, you bet. You George fish Anderson with your clients. Told me a long, Okay, but they don't mind. Oh, so if dude. they miss the fish, you go up and get it. Sometimes you bet, dude. My clients, my clients, like I told you, some most of them are better than most of the fishing guides I know. They don't care. They don't want to get out of them. They were like, "Yeah, do it. You deserve it." I mean, a lot of times too, we're fishing. <laughs> I mean, everybody went home and we're still going. So it's like, yeah, Paulson, you throw it. I mean, I'll. I mean, steelheading too. All those things always have. You know, it's. I think too with guiding, I don't think enough guides do it. For me, I'm a visual learner more than, I mean, I obviously can read it and understand it too, but all of a sudden somebody does it in front of me and I'm like, oh my God, that's what you were talking about. And there's not enough guides, especially in the guide world. I, I've kind of kept it myself I'm like, right on, you don't want to fish when you're guiding. I can't imagine not throwing a cast out there because it's like, let me show you what I'm talking about. And they see it and they're like, oh, wow. You just threw a snap tee with a reach cast with a dry fly and it hit the bank. And now you're de-looping men's on and it's drifting 40 feet down the bank. Now he eats it. I understand what you're talking about now. Versus before, how do you explain that to somebody? Yeah, it's a learning tool. I, I gotcha. I gotcha. So, um, 
Anyhow. No, I love it. Look, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I, I, every single time that I can drop my jaw in an interview, it just makes my day. So thank you so much. You've set my morning off right now. I'm a little crazy. <laughs> I love it. Um, we'll wrap it up because we're just at an hour here. Cool. Is there anything that you would right. like to add or to ask me? Not off the top of my head right now. I mean, we've been talking, so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's like, I didn't mean that's to pause that long, but I was hear. like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> I think we covered it. Because usually if they add something, I'm like, why didn't I add that? Or that if they ask yeah, me no, something, uh, it's like, oh, I don't want to talk about me. So this is perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I had fun it, chatting with you. That was cool. It's been a pleasure. We'll definitely have to fish. When are you coming back to BC? I've never been up there steelhead fishing. You know why, April? It's elk season then. Oh, and you yeah. can't get me out of Montana to do it then. I just, it's tough. Unless you fill I your mean, bag early. Th- yeah, true. And I've done that before. But I like to look for big horns, so most of the time I come up empty-handed and have to spend the whole season hunting. Yeah, right. <laughs> Poor you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been an absolute cool. pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Will do. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's awesome. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.